I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're we're a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on dirty conspiracies, exciting adventures, and alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And for season two, we're focusing on Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars in a weekly conversation. We're so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Welcome to week two. Week two of season two. I decided not to go with the, hello! <laughs> I got multiple text messages yeah, about I it last like week. Yeah, I feel like people liked it, though. <laughs> <laughs> so welcoming. Uh, I wish people could have seen my physical reaction. <laughs> I just, like, froze. I didn't know what to do when she, <laughs> when she went for it. <laughs> but we are so glad you're back for episode... Two of season two, episode 40. Yep. Uh, So many different ways to say what this episode is. I know. (laughs) But we are on episode 40 of A Tap on the Wrist. Oh my gosh, in 10 episodes we'll be at 50. Can you you believe it? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Because we've planned it out and I've seen it on paper. (laughs) We are... Continuing, uh, for those of you that were on Instagram last week, thank you for liking our pictures Mm -hmm. um, of Hinky Dink. (laughs) Our friend Hinky Mm -hmm. Dink and Bathhouse Mm -hmm. and Diamond Jim and the Fox. Yeah. Uh, So if you missed last week's episode, make sure you catch up. Uh, Season two is a little bit sequential, so you do Mm -hmm. want to listen from the beginning of season two, which is episode 39. Yes. Uh, And... To help you understand all the backstories for all the fun tales we are going to be telling. Right. We are still in part one of our eight-part series. Um, part one, season two, of episode two, mm-hmm. so many things. But we are, we are still in part one. We have, I think, one more episode in this part before we move on to part two. Yep. Today we're going to be talking all about Chicago's underbelly. I'm talking about those yes. deep, dark secrets in the Chicago politics and underhand activities. Or blackhand activities, oh. if you will. And make sure that you are checking out our Instagram and social media again this week. Again, we're going to be posting pictures about all the people we're talking about and some of the, the ideas that we're talking about. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at a tap on the wrist. Yes, and you can also email us at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com with any ideas or insights that you have or corrections, anything you want to say to us. Um, but also on our Instagram and Twitter, you can find our new Saturday segment. I was going to say segment, <laughs> but I didn't know if that was the right word. Uh, but we are going to be taking our like cocktail of the week thing that we had done in season one and kind of making it a thing on Saturdays to post on Instagram. And we're going to be posting recipes for cocktails, uh, some fun facts that might relate to the cocktails that we're posting about. And just obviously, of course, beautiful cocktail pictures. So definitely, again, follow us to check those out. Next week, Laura's up. She's got to post. She's got to come up with a cocktail to post. Oh, challenge accepted. (laughs) 
So we are gonna get started on today's episode. Yeah, let's do it. Today, I'm going to introduce you to another key player in the Chicago mob scene, but this is not going to be the only time we discuss him. Kind of the same as episode one. Mm -hmm. These players are going to come up throughout all of season two, but we kind of have to do these background stories so you know who they are and what they will and won't stand for. How they became criminals. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They're just born that way. (laughs) (laughs) Um... So, he is going to play a huge role later in the series when we get around to Al Capone, but we do need to kind of dive into that underbelly of Chicago politics to fully understand how organized crime was delivered with so much success in Chicago. So, today I'm talking to you about William Hale Thompson, America's most unethical mayor in Boston, Massachusetts on May 14th, 1868. Big Bill, as he's eventually going to be nicknamed. You know, we love a nickname. We got Big Jim (laughs) and Big Bill. Yeah. For different reasons, I think. Yeah. Well, Big Jim, I don't think I even said. You didn't. In episode one, it's just because of his stature. He was just a large guy. It's a similar reason here. He's not born that way, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's why the nickname He wasn't born as a large man. (laughs) He might have had a big head, I don't know. Um, But he's born in Boston, Massachusetts, and he's brought to Chicago as, like, an infant. His father, William Hale Thompson Sr., was a veteran Navy serviceman who had served during the Civil War. And after his service, however, Bill Sr. became a wealthy real estate operator and quite a famous Chicagoan uh, in his own right. He was a politician as well, so... Big Bill is going to follow his father a little bit. Um, On his mother's side, however, Bill Jr.'s grandfather, Stephen F. Hale, was the first chief of Chicago, was the first chief of the Chicago Fire Department, and he played a large part in drawing up the city's uh, corporation charter all the way back in 1837. So Big Bill had quite the legacy in Chicago and was expected to do pretty great things in his life. That wasn't really Big Bill's style. Uh, He was quite a rebellious teenager. And so when he was 14, he was supposed to leave and go to Yale at 14. But he... I I know, mind-boggling. But he decided that wasn't the life for him, so he moved to Wyoming. Instead of going to Yale? Instead of going to Yale. Okay. We each, you know, have our paths. At 14, he moved to Wyoming by himself. Interesting. And he became a cowboy and a cattle owner. At 14. At 14. (laughs) Okay. Um, He then spent a little bit of time traveling across Europe. And when he came home, he took up ranching in both Texas and New Mexico. And he literally was, like, living his cowboy dreams. Like, this is... As one does. This was his life. Like, that is where the story... Could have and probably should have ended for yeah. Big Bill. Yeah. But it isn't. What happens is uh, his father, Bill Sr., gets pneumonia and passes away in 1891. And so in 1892, Bill Jr., who is now 24 years old, 
returns to Chicago and takes over the management of his father's estate. After 10 years of being a cowboy. Yeah. We have Big Bill. He's back in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like we alluded to his nickname, this guy is over six feet tall. He's 300 pounds. He's a big man. Mm -hmm. And now he has a penchant for wearing cowboy hats. (laughs) So overall, this is where the nickname comes from. He just kind of like lingers over everyone. And so the nickname Big Bill fits. Uh, He's also very strong because of all of his ranching and cowboying. And he was known for being quite athletic, both as a young man and as an adult. Mm-hmm. So he, when he returns, he becomes a member and then the captain of a like local football team uh, called the Chicago Athletic Association. And then because of his father's Navy roots, he'd grown up around boats and he had a passion for yachting. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he is what he is. There is an anecdote that I found to prove his strength. And I was like, this story is so crazy, but I'm going to share it anyways. Can't wait. So, on July 24th, 1893, this is shortly after he returns to Chicago, him and his mother are at their summer home in Wisconsin, and there is a drunk man that comes up. His name is Fred Schumacher, and he gets into a fight, or a quarrel, as they say, Okay. with... The Thompson family footman or servant. Okay. Okay. And Schumacher's upset because he had been fired as the footman and this new man had taken over. And so he's like drunk and upset and he starts a fight. And Big Bill intervenes between the two men. And it's at that time when Schumacher takes like a swing at Big Bill. And so in return, Big Bill takes a swing, which is later described as a soft punch. Um, at the very drunk Schumacher in which he falls over and never gets up because he was dead. He killed him with one punch? Yes. Damn. Damn, Um, Big Bill. Yeah. But the doctors rule that it wasn't Thompson's punch that killed him. It actually had nothing to do with his dying and that Schumacher probably died from alcoholic apoplexy which is basically a stroke or like bursting of blood vessels Mm -hmm. that would have caused him to die but most historians agree it was probably a combination of like being punched but you know the thompsons are well respected Mm -hmm. probably had some money and influence so they returned to chicago no charges no responsibility for this guy's death all right yeah Okay, so Bill is living his best life in Chicago. You know, he's in his mid-20s. He's got friends, money, charisma. Comes from a very, like, well-respected family in Chicago. So what is a guy like that to do? I don't know. Tell me. He follows his father's footsteps and runs for political office. Because he seems very qualified. Yes. Um, And so he is elected to the Cook County Board of Commissioners as an alderman, um, as Vanessa explained in episode one. And so this happens in 1902. And, you know, things start out pretty kosher, if you will. Um, Thompson is getting, you know, his feet wet in politics. Mm -hmm. And he forms a political alliance with a man named Frederick London. Okay. Um, Bill is outgoing and charismatic 
while London is cunning and full of all of these like very creative ways to get things done in Chicago. I'm guessing creative mm -hmm. might also be illegal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wouldn't be wrong. And so with this friendship or alliance that they form, they've got like Bill in the front who, while being very large and somewhat intimidating, was also that type of personality that like was very kind and like like almost like a big yeah. bear. Like drew people in. And, yeah. Yeah. And then London was like the behind the scenes, cunning, political, corrupt. Um, and so this is where they form this journey for corrupt election methods and even just like more. Hinky Dink. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about Hinky Dink. <laughs> even more corrupt politics. Uh and so they they continue this alliance. They continue working in kind of more local po county um, politics for quite some time. And in 1915, Big Bill decides he wants more, bigger, better, and he runs for mayor of Chicago. And he wins, which Good is job, exciting. Big Bill. Yes. Um, and during his inauguration speech, he speaks about his ambitions for Chicago to become the greatest in the world. And he wants his acts as mayor to not be swayed by corruption. Because as we are going to get into, and we've, we've mentioned a lot, like 1915 is in, you know, we're not at Prohibition yet. Right. But there's a lot of corruption and organized crime happening in Chicago at the time. Like, oh, yeah. this is like the reign of Torrio and Big Jim mm -hmm. and all of the brothels and the Red District. And this is when he becomes mayor. Right. So he's he gets elected and he says he doesn't want to be corrupt. You know, he wants to lead a very mm -hmm. healthy mayor's office. I'm sure that's uh, how his life is. That's where the story ends, right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what happens. He cleans it up. There's... Never a man named Capone. <laughs> History books lie to you. Um, no, I wish. That is not what happens at all. Uh, so he also in his inauguration, he emphasizes the importance of public safety and improving public transit and his goals to secure and permanently lower gas prices in Chicago. Like he has a great plan for Chicago. Mm -hmm. But really the truth is Bill never should have become mayor because he didn't fairly win the election. Oh, uh, he won the election due to a lot of corruption. And that corruption was led by his good friend, London, mm -hmm. who he had formed this friendship with. So London, basically what happened is that to get votes for Thompson, he got over 30,000 supporters to agree to vote for Thompson as mayor and that he would get them on the city payroll after Thompson was elected. And that's exactly what happened. So Thompson wins the election. Then these 30,000 supporters randomly get jobs in Chicago on the Chicago payroll, but they're not real jobs. They're all fronts. Mm -hmm. And they're all of a sudden getting these paychecks for voting for Thompson. And then to take it even one step Further, London went back to each of these supporters and got kickbacks for them getting paychecks. So, like, he then asked for money what? on top of the vote. Like, he was like, you vote, I'll get you money, 
and then you're going to give me some of that money. Okay. But his plan worked. He got Thompson elected to mayor. Um, he got the supporters the the money, and he himself got money. So, and Thompson promised to make Chicago great again. Yes. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm gonna get to the similarity of those two statements. Um, so. While I keep referencing he does some terrible things, he does do some of the things he promised in his inauguration speech. Uh, he actually, during his first term as mayor, is given another nickname. It just kind of adds on. So it's Big Bill the Builder. Okay. Can Alliteration. You fix it? Yes, you can. No Bob the Builder fans? Okay. Um, so... During his first term, he does lots of road building and construction in Chicago. Um, he does grow the city. And some pretty big, well-known pieces, such as the Michigan Avenue Bridge that connects north and south Chicago that is still there today. Um, and he does quite some harm as well, because while he's making all of these improvements, he was also in the pocket of the mob working very closely with Johnny Torrio and uh, Kalisme... What's his name? <laughs> Big Jim. Big Jim. That's the easier one. Yeah. But Colosimo. Colosimo. Bill Thompson cuts out the middleman in most of their interactions and actually just takes the kickbacks directly from the Chicago outfit mm -hmm. um, in return for turning a blind eye to all of the sex work and gambling that these two men were kind of organizing in the red light district. Mm -hmm. So he knows it's happening. And instead of going in and shutting it all down or arresting them, he kind of just takes money and bribes. Mm. So yeah. Uh, one newspaper. And I mean, Chicago kind of turns against him for this because organized crime becomes like very, very large and in charge in Chicago under his mayorship mm -hmm. because he's not cracking down on it. So one newspaper at the time described him as an international clown responsible for making Chicago a synonym for rampant crime and corruption. Mm -hmm. um, and while we know, most of us, that many cities kind of turned a blind eye during prohibition mm -hmm. um it is very hard to find another mayor uh in the 19th century who ran such like an open crime city yeah and who did as much financial harm to the city or worked as closely with members of the mob in their city as our friend here bill thompson uh but it didn't go unnoticed i mean like people he had run as a Republican, ran with a lot of support, and then he lost them because, like, the the white population of Chicago was like, you're not doing us any favors. Yeah. Like, you're doing us small favors, I guess. And he realized as he started to get uh, ready to run for his second term, he needed to find support. And so he turns to the black population of Chicago. He realizes if he relies solely on white Chicagoans, he's not going to be reelected again. Mm -hmm. So being, you know, charismatic and charming, he literally just switches his entire like platform and focus and 
goes after the black vote in Chicago for his second term. Uh, at the time, the black population was still very loyal to like the Lincoln party and the ideas of Abe Lincoln. Uh-huh. Uh, and so Thompson took advantage of that and he needed the black vote. So he started to appoint some uh, black citizens to his council and campaign. Mm -hmm. And he handed out lots of jobs in um, the black neighborhood so much so that he earned himself another nickname, little Lincoln. Okay. Uh, and so, again, like, I've said it so many times, like, he was charismatic and a political chameleon. Mm -hmm. uh, he just kind of changed. He promised whatever he could to whomever he could to get whatever he could, right. whether he could keep them or not. And for his uh, re-election campaign, he promised to advocate for the black people of Chicago to protect them from corporations and the rich and he was successful. He was reelected in 1919 because of his support by the black community. Okay. He had the support of the mob. Uh-huh. And now he had the support of the black community. So, I mean, he didn't need the, like, middle class, wealthy, white community in Chicago. And he won re-election. So, there were said to be about 75,000 black voters in 1919 that all voted for him. Um... And it became so controversial at the time, and there was so much backlash to him changing. It's actually what leads to the race riot of 1919. Oh, wow. Um, and I mean, we could literally do a whole episode on just the race riot, but I'm going to just do a very brief synopsis. Mm -hmm. um, basically, there was segregation in Chicago. And a lot of it stemmed from, obviously, just what was happening in the country. But in Chicago specifically, a lot of veterans came home from World War One, and they found that their jobs had been given during the war to black citizens, and they wanted their job back, but companies could pay less to the black um, employees, so they weren't giving their jobs. So it caused a lot of tension in Chicago. And so a lot of it started with, like, labor unions and things. And then with Thompson, you know, not really helping, like, white Chicago, it just, it caused a lot of tension. And so on July 27th of 1919, riots broke out across the city. And these, from what I've read, it was terrible. Like, it was, like, people just setting businesses on fire, mm -hmm. fights in the street, it was hundreds of small riots all across Chicago. Oh, wow. um, a lot of it in the black communities. It was like white citizens going into the black communities in um, like almost like revenge for what had Chicago had turned into. Um, and it got so bad, it got national attention. And the president was like, I will send in the National Guard. And Bill Thompson was like, let's wait and see. Let's, uh -huh. let's see what happens. It's very, very similar to, like, things we might hear in the news these days in 2020. Mm -hmm. But so it starts on July 27th, and it takes four full days before Thompson agrees to have the National Guard step in. But in total, over the eight days, 38 people are killed. 23 of them are black. 15 of them are white. It leads to over 537 um, injuries. 
two-thirds of those being black citizens, one-third of them white, and about approximately 1,000 to 2,000 people um, lost their homes during this eight-day series of riots in Chicago. Uh, And the riots impact the economy in Chicago. Um, Low-income neighborhoods are, like, decimated. And so people who were already poor and struggling have now lost their homes. And it really is a, a turning point, like, in Chicago's history. Yeah. That I don't think a lot of people know about. Like I said, we could talk a whole episode about I'm it. sure. But him, Thompson had a big part in that by kind of turning his entire political campaign and focusing and promising so much to black communities. White communities really rebelled um, and led to these riots. Uh, and, you know, newspapers... Still not a fan of Big yeah, Bill. Continued from um, his first term. I'm going to read a fan. quote that I got out of that book um, that I mentioned in episode one, and I'll mention it again when I do my sources at the end. But this quote, when I read it the first time, I was just like, holy cow, he was not liked. I don't know what this quote is, but Laura read it. To, you know, to herself while we were on a phone call. And I've been waiting to find out. I was so excited. <laughs> okay, so this is, this is the quote from, um, it is the Chicago Tribune. And it says, For Chicago, Thompson has meant filth, corruption, obscenity, idioc- idiocracy, and bankruptcy. He has given the city an international reputation for moronic buffoonery, barbaric crime, triumphant hoodlumism, unchecked graft, and dejected citizenship. He nearly ruined the property and completely destroyed the pride of the city. He made Chicago a byword for the collapse of the American civilization. In his attempt to continue this, he excelled himself as a liar and defamer of character. He's out. He's not only out, but he is dishonored. He is permanently deserted by his friends. He is permanently marked by the evidence of his character and conduct. His health is impaired by his ways of life, and he leaves office and goes from the city the most discredited man who ever held place in it. Damn. Yeah. Also, a lot of those things sounded familiar. I know, I know. Um, And, you know, he often, I mean, he was torn apart in the news yeah daily um so much so there's a quote here uh he when they asked him about a quote in the newspaper he his reply was the only crime war we have is with dishonest newspapers Mm. Mm. uh so in 1920 he sued the chicago tribune for five hundred thousand dollars um, you know, just for saying they were lying, but the case went to a mistrial. He was never retried. Um, in 1921, the Tribune then sued him um, for stealing money, and like they had found two million dollars that they say he had like fraudulently taken. Um, the judge found him guilty, but then it was later overturned by the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, much later, like in the 30s, it was overturned. Um, but like, there's so much evidence that he defrauded the city of Chicago over and over and over again. And the Tribune tried during his entire mayorship to like get him out of office, mm-hmm. and he like kept 
getting away with it over and over and over again. But in 1923, the honest citizens of Chicago were tired of his administration and his totally lax ways and partnership with the gangster rule. Um, And he also was found, well, his campaign manager was found to have been shaking down school supply vendors with bribes. Uh, he, (laughs) He had a really big issue with European history being in school textbooks. So weird. Yeah, there's there was like a whole conspiracy. I chose not to really go into it because it was kind of confusing. But he had a very big issue with American children learning European history. And he tried to bribe schools to like eliminate their textbooks and buy textbooks from his friends. It, it was weird. Okay. But, so all of this... Um, Scandal! It finally, like, that was it. He ended up withdrawing from the 1923 mayoral race and was not elected mayor for the third time. Okay. So, you know, seems like the end of Big Bill's political career. like it's not. But it is not. Um, While there is a different mayor in 1923, Big Bill keeps all of his connections with the mob. And as... Um, the mob continues to grow in Chicago. Uh, so does the support for Big Bill. And he actually runs for mayor again in 1927. Guess what his campaign slogan is? Oh my God, what is it? America first. Okay. I'm not kidding. <laughs> when I found that out, I was like, uh, as if there couldn't be another parallel between this man and our current president. Uh, there's just so itself, right? many parallels. I can't get over it. Uh, so anyways, he is successful in 1927. He does become mayor for a third term. And it's almost all because of his friendship and connections with the mob. Um, including at that time in 1927, Al Capone is very much on the scene in mm-hmm. Chicago. Very much the man. Um, and we are going to get to all those details later in the season. But uh, the rundown of his third and easily his most corrupt term, even though it's all I've talked about, the third term is even worse. Can't wait wait to find out about it. It's going to come back when we we get into those years and what was happening with Al Capone in Chicago. But uh, that's William Hale Thompson or Big Bill. He's quite the politician. Quite the politician. No resemblance at all to our current president. Yeah, I I literally, <laughs> when I was researching it, it was over and over again, I was like, wow, wow, oh my gosh, that sounds so eerily familiar. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad you saw that connection as well. Oh, yeah. Hey, guys, if you like history podcasts, you should check out Hashtag History. They're a female-run podcast out of California, and here's their trailer. Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you're a history nerd, or even a history hater, this is the podcast for you. Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. Things like how the Bonnie Prince Charles and his Jacobite uprising was 
it's a bit of a disaster. Yeah, or how the pharaoh Akhenaten was so disliked by Egyptians that they literally purged his name from nearly all of their records and pretended like he had never existed. And we do all of this while drinking and rating a custom-made cocktail specific to that week's topic. So grab a drink, take a seat, and hang out with us each week as we learn all about history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Okay, so I'm not profiling a person. I'm profiling a group of people. Okay. So when we left off with Calissimo and Torio's stories, Big Jim had called Johnny Torio to help him deal with the black hand. So we briefly touched on what that was, but I think it's important to look back at exactly who they were and where the Black Hand came from because it was a precursor to what we know as organized crime and the mafia. So to recap from what I said in episode one, the Black Hand was an Italian extortion racket that targeted fellow Italian immigrants with threats of violence and demands for large sums of money. And... It's very strange they targeted, like... Their own people. Their own people. Yeah. Like, continue. Yeah. Uh, they signed their letters with a hand dipped in black ink, hence the black hand. And while we're talking about the black hand in Chicago, it didn't actually originate there. Uh, and Chicago also wasn't the only major American city where the black hand existed. Uh, in fact, in 1900, the Black Hand had been established in cities like Philadelphia, New Orleans, Scranton, San Francisco, New York, and Detroit. I've heard a lot of Scranton this week. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I thought that was a random one, like the other ones are such big cities, and then I was like, Scranton. Uh, no offense to people who live in Scranton. No, it's the birthplace of Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh... So the Black Hand can be traced back to Naples in the 1750s, so way back. But it was established by Italian immigrants in the United States during the 1880s. Uh, and according to the People Source, though most of the targets were the more successful immigrants, almost 90% of Italian immigrants and workmen in New York and other communities were threatened by the Black Hand. Hmm. They just went after everyone. So the letter sent would demand a certain amount of money to be delivered to a specific location and would threaten the person with violence, kidnapping, arson, or murder. Uh, because of the way the letters were signed, a journalist for the New York Herald is who first referred to them as black hand letters. And that name stuck, and the American press then began to kind of generalize Italian organized crime at the time as the black hand society. So the Black Hand was in part successful because people would just pay the money because they felt like American law enforcement didn't understand or have the power to help them since this had like originated from Italy and come to America. And here's an excerpt of a Black Hand letter that I found on gangrule.com. Uh, it's a little poetic, so if I screw up reading it, I'm sorry. Uh, it says... If you have not sufficient courage, you may go to people who enjoy an honorable reputation and be careful as to whom you go. Thus, you may stop us from persecuting you as you have been adjudged to give money or life. 
Woe upon you if you do not resolve to buy your future happiness. You can do, you can do from us by giving the money demanded. Weird, like weirdly worded, right? I was like, I like I would get that letter and be like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you, what am I? Where am I going? What am I yeah, doing? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they. I, I mean, I'm sure it depended person by person on how flourishy or wordy they were, but but that was one example. And there was also on the same website a description from someone who had been targeted by the Black Hand that was published in the New York Times, which I know not Chicago, but you still get the vibe. So the the little piece says, "My name is Salvatore Spinelli. My parents in Italy came from a decent family." I came here 18 years ago and went to work as a house painter like my father. I started a family and I have been an American citizen for 13 years. I had a house at 314 East 11th Street and another one at 316, which I rented out. At this point, the black hand came into my life and asked me for $7,000. I told them to go to hell and the bandits tried to blow up my house. Then I asked for the police I asked the police for help and refused more demands, but the black hand set off one, two, three, four, five bombs in my house. Things went to pieces. Literally. Oh my god. From 32 tenants, I am now down to six. I owe $1,000 interest that is due next month and I cannot pay. I'm a ruined man. My family lives in fear. There's a policeman or a guard in front of my house, but what can he do? My brother Frances Francesco and I do guard duty at the windows with guns night and day. My wife and children have not left the house for weeks. How long can this go on? Well, that's awful. Yeah, yeah. And they like and he's just like, a normal. I was just gonna say Italian. he's like a normal guy, yeah. like not a big famous mob boss, right? So, and like seven thousand dollars back then. Yeah, I was like, if someone asked me for seven thousand dollars right have now. now. You can blow up my apartment. <laughs> I tell you to go to hell too. So back then, like I, the inflation rate on that is astronomical. Yeah. yeah. I, I I don't know, and it, it like you said, it boggles my mind that they did this to fellow immigrants. Right. What year was it? Do you know the year uh, that this was published? Yeah. I don't, but it was the early 19th century. Okay, I'm going to say like 1905. I'm going to see if I can do like an inflation rate calendar. Calculator. Okay. Calendar? <laughs> you knew what I meant. <laughs> um, okay, so hold on. $7,000 mm -hmm. in 1905 would be like $206,000 <laughs> today. There's no way I would be able to give someone that money. No, no way. Like, are you... Flipping kidding me? Yeah. Not happening. That's bananas. I wonder what happened to that guy. Could well, I find like, out? But why would they ask for so much money? Like, who would think that they would be able to pay that? I get, well, it said that they most commonly went after, like, the well-to-do well, immigrants. Obviously, but, like, and he was, like, renting another building out. So I guess they thought he had a lot of money, but... Not that much. Goodness. Goodness. While we're talking about New York City, before we get back to Chicago, um, I did want to note that there was quite a bit of interesting information on the Black Hand in New York City, and a New York City policeman named Joseph Pe 
Petrosino. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Say it like you mean it. Uh who they also called the Italian Sherlock Holmes. Ooh. Uh, and he, along with his squad, or his Italian squad, as they were called, which were just his fellow officers that were also Italian, I guess. His Italian squad. His Italian squad. Uh, they took on the Black Hand. And there's actually a really interesting-sounding book called The Black Hand, The Epic War Between a Brilliant Detective and the Deadliest Secret Society in American History by Stephen Talty. And you read the whole thing. I read the whole thing. No, I do (laughs) want to read it, but apparently Leonardo DiCaprio got the rights to play the Italian Sherlock Holmes, uh, and it's slated to be a movie, but the latest info I could find on it was 2017. But I feel like it'd be interesting to see a movie about the Black Hand, even if it's the Black Hand in New York. It would be really cool, but Leonardo DiCaprio is not Italian. I think he is. Is he? DiCaprio sounds like he might be Italian. I don't know. He's got, like, blue eyes, blonde hair. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh... I guess I'm stereotyping him. (laughs) But I guess that, that, I just thought that was interesting. It's like a little side note. But let's go back to Chicago and to Big Jim and Johnny Torrio. So as we told you in episode one, the Can black... We call him Diamond Jim? Diamond Jim. Uh, it was <laughs> one of his nicknames. We can do it. Uh, so the Black Hand had began to send their telltale Black Hand marked letters to Diamond Jim. Uh, demanding money and threatening his life. So, like we said, he called up his wife's nephew, Johnny Torrio, and and Johnny came to help him eliminate the problem. So, Torrio is alleged to have killed 10 Black Hand gangsters in his first month in Chicago. Damn. Just got to business. Uh, And it's believed he assassinated many more of the Chicago Black Hand gangsters between 1909 and 1911 for Diamond Jim. So, question, I don't know if you know the answer to this. Yep. He killed them, or he, like, had people kill them? It seemed to have been a mix, from what I read. Mostly had people kill them. There is one... I'm going to read a couple of different things that happened, and in one case, he was the attacker, uh, but in the others... That's interesting, because in most of the research I did for, like, his early life, it was all, like, him orchestrating it. Yeah, I think it is, for the most part. And the one that I'm going to tell... I mean, I'll, I'll get there, but... He okay. doesn't actually kill the person. Okay, oh, sorry. So the f- the first story I'm going to tell you is about a man named Filippo Catalano, and he was killed on June 5th of 1910. So just a little background on him. Catalano came to the United States in the early 1900s and ended up running a saloon in Chicago where he became connected to criminal nightlife and allegedly with the Black Hand. Uh, on the night of June 5th, he was shot five times outside of a restaurant called Vesuvius and died one hour later. However, despite the fact that he didn't die right, right away, he practiced a gangland principle called um, Amerta, sure, yeah, uh, which means total silence, and he never named his murderer, even though he had the chance to. I've read that in some of my research for, like, a, a couple things. They, like very much yeah we're serious about like not snitching yeah snitches get stitches (laughs) (laughs) even though the investigation in his death into his death would eventually lead to a man named eugenio monaco many people believe toria was involved because it fits the time period when he was taking out black hand members and 
people believe that Monaco may have just been his trigger man. So just, mm. you know, the guy that, again, that Torrio, you know, organized it and this guy pulled it off. But the official story was that Catalano left the restaurant at about 3 a.m. with two men, Edgar K. Aceta, a New York lawyer, and Eugenio Monaco. While approaching a car, Monaco shot Catalano five times and escaped on foot. Hmm. Allegedly. Allegedly. So another major black hand extortionist named Jim Cosmano, and this is the one where Torrio seems to have been directly involved, was severely wounded in an ambush by Johnny Torrio on a south side bridge. This guy Cosmano allegedly first threatened to beat up Col Diamond Jim, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> allegedly threatened to beat up Diamond Jim's sex workers. I just need you to know, every time you say Diamond Jim, I think of his white suit. Diamond <laughs> <laughs> like, time, Every time you say it. I'm glad. So... He threatened to beat up Diamond Jim's sex workers and their customers if he didn't receive 500, no, $550,000 a week, which I'm sure is probably like 500000 Yeah. Uh, that didn't work out, so he later demanded 10000 threatening to destroy Colosimo's cafe, which we'll get to in another episode. So obviously Torrio wasn't having that. After the attack, Cosmano was apparently smuggled out of the hospital by associates and left Chicago altogether, so he wasn't killed, but apparently Torrio attacked him. And he left, so he got rid of the, like... Yeah, exactly. So, the last story I'm going to tell is Pascal D'Amico and two Danello brothers that were hanging out together. They were hanging out on the Rock Island Railroad underpass at Archer Street, where they were all shot on November 22nd. You said that so casually. I know. Like they're hanging out. Hanging out, then, and they're, then shot. they're shot. Uh, they were shot on November 22nd of 1911, and while Domico and Francisco Danello were both killed, Stefano Danello was found alive by police. He dragged himself down the sidewalk a block away and lived. While he was in the hospital, he asked to see someone we know. Good old Diamond Jim. Oh. Except when Jim got there, Stefano refused to speak with him, even though he asked him to come. So all three of these men that were shot were named as black hand extortionists. And though a theory would come out later via the Tribune that the shootings were due to a love triangle, not between the three of them, but... So <laughs> <laughs> it'd be like a love square. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they just, like, knew mm -hmm. people involved. It, it seemed very loose and, like, not a legit reason theory. for... Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't explain why Stefano wanted Diamond Jim to come <laughs> to the hospital. Uh, so people generally agree that it was probably, again, a Torrio-planned assassination. So I want to note that some people thought of the Black Hand as a myth, though it seems like there was a lot of evidence that they were not a myth, uh, and others 
basically said that anyone with ink and paper could write a black hand note, which I guess is true. Uh, but either way, by 1920, the black hand and its activities seemed to have mostly faded as organized crime and the mafia rose, including, of course, the outfit. Uh, after helping with the black hand issue, Torrio decided to stick around Chicago and help to grow the outfit, along with someone who we all know that Torrio called from New York City, our good friend Al Capone. Yay! But that's a story for another day. And uh, that's all I got on the black hand. So I guess we can both give our sources. Mine, of course, the people's source. <laughs> what am I not going to use Wikipedia? Uh, again, the Chicago Crime Scenes Project and gangrule.com, which I mentioned, as well as a USA Today article that had kind of that info about the New York side of things. And for William Hale, I used the book that I sourced in episode one, Al Capone's Beer Wars, written by John J. Binder. And I found an article on uh, NBCChicago.com, and it was the most corrupt public official in Illinois history, William Hale Thompson. Um, and they did a really in-depth, like, deep dive into him and got tons of information from them. Those are my sources. I probably did peruse the people's source for him. I mean, sometimes, honestly, in the case of the Black Hands, they had the most information that I could find because it wasn't really, like, organized by one person and it was, like, all these, you know, individual players and all these different cities. There wasn't really, like, a lot of concrete info and the people's source just centralized it all. They centralized it for me. Yes. Um, wonderful. Like, we are two episodes in. We now know Capone is coming to Chicago. We do. We've alluded to it many times. Um, but that was the second episode of part one. We're still in part one. Which did we... We didn't say what, what we called part one, did we? Um, it's the origins of the Chicago outfit. It's very descriptive. But you know what? We're not even going to get to Al Capone in episode three. No. Episode three, I I think, might be our last episode in part one. It is. We don't get to Capone until part two. Yeah. Episode four is when we we get to our good friend. But we're building up all of this history, which I think is super important to know and understand. And in episode three, we're going to talk about a lot of, like, the bars and brothels and cafes that we've mentioned in more in-depth ways. Some of the 200 that Diamond Jim ran. Yeah. <laughs> when he wasn't street sweeping. When he wasn't street sweeping in his, in his white suit. So. Oh, and obviously you should, if you guys want to see pictures from this episode and from episode one, I'm sure we'll find one of Diamond Jim in his white suit if we haven't already. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at tap on the wrist. Yes, and if you have any inside information, anything you want us to include, or corrections that we need to make, uh, send us an email. We're uh, tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. And we'll catch you next week. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>